Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, January 27th. Arden Zwelling and Ben Nicholson Smith, first ATL of 2022. Awesome to have you all along listening with us. Thanks so much for coming along on what is going to be year eight, if you can believe it, of at the letters. Uh, ben and I just aging wow. before all of your eyes. Wow. That is wild. <laughs> Almost a decade, Ben. Yeah, wow. right? Let that set in. Thanks to our producers this week, Amal Delich and Nick Andrade. And thanks to Shai Davidi, who's here with us to kick off 2022, a uh, friend and colleague at Sportsnet. Shy, are you well? Are you sane? How are you holding up? I am well. I am sane. I am cold. Uh, and right now I'm super impressed at eight years, man. That is... Uh... That's a great run. It's it is hard to believe that it's been eight years. And it's uh you know it's uh, aging you guys, aging me even more. Shy, you are you're here to talk about uh, a lot of things that, that are going on with uh, with the Blue Jays, but we got to start with uh, the big read at sports.ca that you had out recently titled "Risk and Reward: Why the Blue Jays Shouldn't Wait to Extend." Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I would uh, encourage everybody to go to sportsnet.ca and read that. And risk and reward is really the perfect way to put it, I think, when we're, we're talking about extensions for young stars like like these two, because, you know, that's what it kind of takes to, to make a deal is figuring out how you are sharing the risk between the sides, the, the player and, and the organization, and, and how you're sharing the potential rewards. And I think, obviously... The Blue Jays would be motivated to sign either of these guys, both of these guys, to long-term extensions. They're really, really good. And as we've seen time and again throughout um, modern MLB history, like when you're signing guys to pre-arb extensions, even like extensions in arb years, guys of this caliber, it almost always works out very well. Typically, getting somewhat of of a discount. You know, you're um, you know you're paying in today's dollars as opposed to like three, four, five years down the road dollars when prices have inflated. And, and a variety of variety of factors have, have kind of caused things to get more expensive. But shy, like what what do you think are sort of the the considerations, risk and reward wise, that that would have to be met on both sides for this to actually be realistic and for the Blue Jays to actually get down the road on extensions with these two guys? I mean, that's really the million dollar question. And Ben and I were together at the GM meetings in uh, November in Carlsbad, California, where the genesis of the story really began with some of the conversations the two of us were having with people. And, you know, one of the factors I think that is particularly interesting is just where this market is going and how it's developed in recent years with primarily three extensions. You've got the first one being Ronald Acuna Jr. for $100 million over eight years. Then you've got Fernando Tatis Jr. going for 340 over 14. You got Wander Franco, who gets $184 million with not even 100 days in the big leagues yet. And so you just look at the direction that those contracts and the precedents that they've set for players in that group, the sort of the up and coming franchise cornerstone type of player. You know, that's a market that is, if you don't act early, then the players probably end up in free agency. And we're seeing right now that trajectory with Juan Soto in Washington, who in terms of service time is a year ahead of Guerrero and Bichette. So I think if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, what you have to weigh is, are we all in on these guys? Are these guys our cornerstone for the rest of this decade into the next decade? Because if they are those cornerstones, you can't let this drag because you're going to get to the off season of 2025 and be facing 
your two top players both hitting free agency at the same time. So if you're not acting early, you're leaving yourself very, very vulnerable to a massive shift in direction for your franchise. And if you're those players, you have to make the decision of, if this is the place that I want to be, can they get the money right? Those two things, I think both for both Guerrero and Bichette, they feel that Toronto is where they want to be. You know, they've come up through the Blue Jay system. They've got a lot of comfort. Obviously, they've done remarkably well. So they're going to want just compensation. But by the same token, like if they this kind of offer is going to end up on the table for them, then, you know, something they're going to have to consider. So I think that's sort of the broad overview, sort of where the issues are. You know, do the Blue Jays want to take that risk? You know, these contracts can go wrong. And if they go wrong, that's a whole lot of money that's been committed to a player who's underperforming. And of course, there's the risk of injuries, uh, you know, leading to a decline in performance. There, there are all kinds of, of risks as well. But it's hard to get one player of this ilk, let alone two. The Blue Jays have two of them. And it would be almost a disservice in, or malpractice if you don't do everything possible to lock them up long term. It, it's interesting, right? Because if we had dialed this back a year, then for the idea that Bo and Vlad would be in this position would be a really good thing. It is a good problem to have for this organization because they've played so well. Vladdy had an incredible season, 48 homers, second in MVP voting. Like it was, it was unbelievable. And Bo was almost as good. I mean, he led the league in hits five or six war, just a great season. So it's a good problem to have. But, you know, as you laid out at the end of your piece, Shy, like it's also really interesting because at a certain point, the Jays are going to have to make a, discern- a, a determination as to, is it one? Is it both? If we extend Vladdy and not Bo, is Bo offended all of a sudden? Like there are a lot of overlapping considerations here. Yeah, on the flip side too. And then, you know, there there's risk, uh, from a front office perspective too, it's like if you sign one and not the other, like what if you sign the wrong one? Yeah, right. Like what if one leaps far ahead of the of the other in terms of performance or sustains the performance longer? You didn't extend the right one. I mean, there are so many layers to this, but I think if you delve into Blue Jays history, there have been different points where there have been multiple extensions for key players. You know the. Typically, they haven't ended particularly well for the Blue Jays, but you know there was the dual extensions for Hinsky and Wells early in their careers. There was uh, the Aaron Hill and Alex Rios extensions, and then later on there was Adam Lind and Ricky Romero. So this is you know getting two players done is is not without precedent. And on the flip side, you know the, there's also the challenge for the players, right? Both got different agents, so it's not like they're going to completely work together, uh, but you know, what does one want to sign first and let the other use that as a comp in their negotiations? Do they, do they, how do they, how do you go about that? So there, there are a lot of layers in terms of why this is hard to get done. And that to me also is another, uh, another point of why you need to start on this, you know, and I'm sure that it, to some extent, it, there have been at least, you know, some rough, conversations about it but you you know you've really got to start getting down on this because there are a lot of pieces that you have to figure out and a lot of a lot of different elements that you have to find ways to align 
Well, I think that starts with how, the comparables, right? And, and you brought them up, you know, Acuna. Uh, you could throw Franco in there, right? Tatis, obviously. Um, you know, like the Acuna one is like so absurdly team-friendly. And I cannot envision either Boba Shad or Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the sons of like not just big leaguers, but really, really successful big leaguers. I can't imagine either of them going anywhere near what Acuna did. Franco, 0%. Right. Zero percent. Franco is like that's a bit of a unicorn, right? It doesn't really apply to either of these guys, um, in my opinion, just because of the service time, how little big league experience there is there, how far he is from free agency. Both these guys are, are closer to it, obviously. Tatis, like maybe, right? Like Tatis maybe is the closest one. But then you think about it, like with Bichette, okay, sure, Tatis and him play the same position, but Tatis is like a vastly superior offensive force to this point in his career just by the numbers. We'll see what Bichette becomes, but Tatis has done much more offensively. Now, Tatis and Guerrero line up somewhat offensively, but obviously Tatis plays a much more valuable defensive position, brings a lot more value on that side of the ball than Vladimir Guerrero does, does it at first base. So does Tatis really work as a comp for either player shy? Do you start there and, and work backwards? I mean, how do you kind of navigate that from both sides and trying to use Tatis as, as a comp for possible negotiations here between the Jays and, and Bichette or Guerrero? So I think the reason why Tatis is not necessarily a direct comp, but it's sort of a, a peg or an anchor that you can use is because they're at a similar period of control, right? You know, uh, Tatis has three full years of, of service time, both Bichette and Guerrero are two plus. So Ben and I had this conversation a fair bit, you know, uh, about the distinction there, but you would almost look at them, you could potentially look at them as being a year behind Tatis, as opposed to being like half a year away from him. Ben, I, I can see you kind of grinning there because we debated this a fair bit. Just to jump in real quick, and I'll let you finish your point, of course, but I, 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 the way I would frame it is Tatis signed his deal when he had not yet had his 40-plus homer 2021 season. So he signed that deal as a player who was still kind of emergent in the league, and he still got a $340 million guarantee. So to me, that actually positions Vladdy to surpass Tatis and Bo probably behind, but in that territory already. And Tatis was 14 years, $340 million, by the way, just for the listeners' benefit, just to put those numbers out there in case you're not familiar with them. Go ahead, Shai. What Franco does, it's like it establishes, well, look, this is what a player who doesn't even have a year in the big league can get, right? So that's a, that's establishing a, a very distant floor for both of those players. But it's saying, okay, he doesn't even have a year in the major leagues. He's got that. These guys are two plus, and you've already seen what they can do over 162 games. So I think that's, it's sort of that, to me, that establishes a bit of a bottom, and which is why I mentioned Franco. But I think with Tatis, you're arguing, okay, these players are on that kind of trajectory. And if you don't like the Tatis comparison, then you can compare Bo to Corey Seager. And their numbers through the same age and through the same service time are very, very similar. You know, I think they would be probably almost identical if Bichette didn't have to play 2020, the shortened season, if they had a regular season, you know, that's really the only difference between the two. Their rate stats are almost identical. And if you kind of play out what Seeger's earnings were through arbitration and then getting him into free agency, you know, he collected $351 million over 14 years. So if you believe Bo is on the Corey Seeger trajectory, that's where that conversation is. And, you know, I'm sure that Bo will want to argue that he's going to be a better player than Corey Seager 
I, I'm sure that Bo would argue he's going to be a better player than Fernando Tatis Jr. as well. And that's the level of confidence he has. And that's part of what makes him uh, as tremendous a player as he is. But that's why that conversation is right there. And on the Guerrero front, a lot of really smart people are saying, you know, last year wasn't the ceiling for Guerrero. Last year was just scratching the surface. And so if there's really more upside there, and you can legitimately see triple crown upside in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, it was into the last couple of weeks of September that he was right there for that. You'd look at it and say, okay, well, he's the offensive equal and maybe the offensive better of Tatis. He's playing a less valuable position, but let's figure out how we're going to value that. Not to get too deep into the weeds, but if we really get into how Guerrero was set up, because he qualifies for Super 2 status, he's positioned to out-earn Tatis in the, over the next four years before he's a free agent. And all that points to a contract in and around the Tatis area. I think that's a good kind of ballpark to look at for it, assuming that these sides do kind of pick up talks whenever that's permissible again, because obviously they can't do it right now. I, anyone who hasn't looked at the Seeger and Bichette numbers in Shai's story, check it out because they are really, uh, they're really close. But it's interesting, right? The idea of comparables because you can have these contract comparables and there aren't a ton of great ones. I think the Tatis is by far the best one. Um, Seeger's also interesting. Um, you could look at what Freddie Freeman gets for AAV once, once we get that piece of information as well. So there's the contract comp side of things. And then there's also the player type comp. And this gets back to Shai's point about risk and how you measure it. Because on the one hand, you could look at Vladdy and say, okay, from a body composition, from a positional standpoint, there's risk here because we've seen him out of shape. We've seen him struggle defensively. And he's already at a point on the defensive spectrum where he's not giving you as much value. So there's risk with that. On the other hand, with Bichette, you mentioned Vernon Wells a bit earlier, Shy, And I'm also thinking of Josh Hamilton in the sense that these are swing happy players, guys who are such good hitters, such good bat to ball hitters. They make great contact. They make hard contact, hit for power, and yet there can be risk as those players age because they're swinging so much and they're not falling back on walks in the same way that Vladdy does. So they're just different ways to frame risk with this kind of thing. The cost is what it is. I mean, the cost is going to be tremendous for either one, but deciding which player to give a contract to, what that contract looks like, it's a pretty interesting decision to to weigh for the Jays. A hundred percent. And look, this is where you know, the game, we split hairs too much, right? Like, uh, and we, we pick guys apart. And ultimately, like, you have a chance for a guy who's going to be a generational player. Like, the Blue Jays haven't seen, you know, uh, a 21 and a 22-year-old like this in franchise history together since, and I think they were older by the time they got to the big leagues already, but Delgado and Green. You know, the Blue Jays didn't keep that, weren't able to keep that together. They ended up trading Green for Mondesi and you know, Delgado was around for a while, but they were never able to fill in appropriately around him, never really leveraged that. You know, you can go decades without getting two dominant young players like this tied together in service time. Like they're going to get four more years uh, of Bichette and Guerrero together when they're still on the upswing and in theory getting better. Like that's an incredible opportunity for the franchise. And like, I think you look at the Padres and they, they said, okay, well, we've got this opportunity with Tatis and we're going to we're going to pair him with Machado and we're going to have these two dominant forces and we're going to, we've got enough in our farm system that we'll be able to build around those guys for an extended period. 
and be competitive. But you have to have those two dominant forces. It's just really hard to get players of this quality. This is a, obviously a different example because they were different points in their career. But you know, when Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion really fell into the Blue Jays' laps, right? Like they 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 got Batista and he was supposed to be a stopgap at third base. And they got in Encarnacion because they had to take the money to equalize the Roland deal so they could get Zach Stewart. So Blue Jays legend. Yeah, exactly. Um, they had a plan. They were, they were going to build, but they were like, well, man, we've got these two dominant sluggers. We've got to leverage this. And I think you're in a similar boat right now with Guerrero and Bichette like like some teams will go decades without getting two players of this caliber together and so you know they're they're in that position and if you want to keep them together for as long as possible then you know the the times now or it just becomes more and more expensive and more and more difficult to lock them up yeah talk about expensive right like think about these comps are putting on these guys Tatis and Seager those are two guys with like 300 million plus dollar contracts like it's easy for us to kind of sit around here and spend this money because it's monopoly money to us <laughs> right like we're not paying that bill but at some point if the Blue Jays want to do this Mark Spiro is going to have to go to ownership or Rogers Communications and pitch them if they want to do both on more than half a billion dollars commitment and oh by the way like this is ownership that has already been spending like to an un unprecedented level really when you look at 150 million dollars for george springer and 130 for brios 110 for gossman like a few years ago the blue jays had signed one of those guys it would be like whoa <laughs> this is crazy yeah. this is shocking we haven't seen the blue jays sign these kind right. of deals they've signed three of them in the last few years and now we're looking at having to pay bichette and guerrero as well in excess of what those three players have made who by the way now you are probably 60 65 million dollars just for those three in upcoming payrolls we look at brio springer and um and gosman like is it realistic shy like this is at no point ever been a luxury tax team i don't expect it to be a luxury tax team anytime soon is it really realistic that the Blue Jays could fit in mega deals for Guerrero and Bichette into their payrolls as things project now for the next several years? It's, it's a great issue that you raise. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that the Blue Jays have given out four nine-figure contracts. Three of them have come over the past two off-seasons. So it's 100% a big shift in the past couple of years. For this to really work, you know, the Blue Jays are going to have to continue to produce young players who are going to have to be able to give them performance at the discounted rates in the early part of a player's career. Or Relvis Martinez needs to turn into something. Jordan Groshans needs to turn into something, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, pick your players from that group. But the farm system has to continue to produce players in order for those contracts to work. And then you just have to be smart with your other players. So it's like, are we extending to Oscar Hernandez or are we maybe letting him walk once he becomes a free agent? Uh, and those are the tougher decisions that are going to come if you go down this route. And again, clearly the San Diego Padres have gone down this route. So from like a revenue standpoint, that's that's a team that is, you know, they don't have the Canadian dollar, but it's not, not the market that the Blue Jays have. But if the Padres can do it, the Blue Jays can certainly do it. It becomes a matter of, do you have enough faith in your farm system? Do you have enough stock in your farm system where you can, at certain points, sub out the expensive parts with a much cheaper version in order to give you the balance that you need on the roster? Because if you can't have depth on the roster, don't do this. Right. Because you'll end up, you'll end up the 90, 98 through 2001 Blue Jays 
where you're just not good enough and not deep enough to compete with the the Yankees and the Red Sox. You need the the prospects coming up. That's that's for sure. It's interesting too with the Padres because you know that's a team that because you know they they kind of signed the wrong guy in Eric Hosmer, like they can't spend. So the Padres now they're acting kind of like a big market team, but then they're tapped out and so they can't supplement. And the farm system's maybe not quite as as full as it used to be. So they're not actually in, the, like, they're a good team. They're still a playoff team, especially because playoffs are going to expand. But, you know, they're not as well positioned. So you got to be cautious with it. At the same time, like, thinking of elite hitters, right? Just, you know, the best hitters in in baseball. I don't think the St. Louis Cardinals are regretting that they signed Albert Pujols to that first extension, 106 or whatever it was. Like, if Vladdy's on that trajectory, not that the Jays would trade Vlad ever, but if the Marlins had kept Miguel Cabrera for another 10 years, their franchise might have had a different outlook for that period of time, you know, instead of just trying to piece it together with Andrew Miller and Cameron Maben or whatever they got back. So if you're serious about winning and you have players like this fall into your lap, you've got to look long and hard at it. And I think there's a strong case to be made for extending both. You know, if you're looking at it long term, right, you'll have years where there'll be a little bit of financial crunch, but you'll be able to, if you're if you're good and you're paying attention, then you can manage around them, right? Springer and Gosman will both be at, off the books after 2026, I believe. Barrios has got a couple years thereafter, but, you know, the free, the free agencies for Bichette and Guerrero comes after the 25 season. So you might have a crunch in 26, you might have a bit of a crunch in 26, 27, Afterwards, some of the other big contracts are going to be off the books and, you know, they'll be your big tickets. They won't be your big tickets before then. And so you can set up your payroll in a way that you can manage around some of that expense. It's kind of funny to describe them this way, but, you know, the the Springer and Gosman and Barrios type pieces, you know, those are the pieces that you'll sort of be subbing in and out around the Guerrero Bichette once they're at their earnings peak in the years where you'd be paying them. So that's how you work around that. But again, it's all the underpinning of that has to be a farm system that's continuing to give you the young players you need to put that together. Because without that, you know, then you're you're scrambling for, you know, bounce back rebound types or lucking out on, you know, uh, reclamation projects. And that's not the spot you want to be in when you have two players of that elk. Yeah, these things would have to be significantly backloaded um like you said into that kind of 27 28 range to make sense or for it to work because the blue jays still want to have that flexibility to go out and add a marcus Simeon on a one-year 18 million dollar deal like you still want to have that flexibility to be able to address roster needs as they arise like oh hey we don't have like a second baseman that we love for next year marcus Simeon's available on a one-year deal we can go out and make that deal or like hey we really need a right fielder next year or probably not if springer's around we really need a left fielder whatever michael conforto right like one year and and 20 million bucks and we can fill that hole and it doesn't affect us too much long term it makes us better now it ensures that we're insulated against injury and we have that depth and we have veterans around and we're not just relying on whoever's coming up through our system because you can't always guarantee that your prospects are going to work out even if you feel like great about gabe moreno you still haven't seen him at the big league level he might take some time to adjust to the level just like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did in his first two years at the level yeah these things would have to be backloaded like it's interesting Shy, you raised and we could finish on this like you raised the the possibility of like kind of the tandem extensions right like the Vern Wells Eric Hinsky, the Romero the Lind like could you envision a day a scenario opening day 2022 2023 
and we're all huddled in that like press conference room in the bowels of Rogers Center. And there's Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro up there on the podium. And they are flanked by Guerrero and Bichette. And they have like signed these twin extensions to be like the cornerstones of this franchise for eight, nine, ten years to come. Like, is that a far-fetched scenario or is it realistic that that could be happening in, in the somewhat near future? You know, Arden, I feel like this whole conversation for all three of us is going to be like a hard lesson in old takes exposed in a few years <laughs> where we'll, people will look back at what we're saying right now and, uh, and, and kind of killing us over it. Uh, look, I, I, I think in some ways, if you're going to do it, you almost have to do both. Yeah. Um, and I think like if you do both, you're like if you, at minimum you have to get one right, and then picking between that is sort of like having to pick between your kids, right? Like how do you do it? To some extent, it may just be you know maybe one is willing and one isn't, right? One one is determined to hit the market and the other is content to take the deal. But I, I think ultimately, if you're you know you've got a few years of a competitive team. You've got the renovated stadium that's generating more revenue for you. You know, the game continues to grow a little bit. You've got, at least for the time being, some increased national revenues coming in from the United States. Uh, a little bit better strength from the Canadian dollar would obviously help as well, balancing out some of the currency concerns. But I could see a scenario where it's both of them and where that's the, the priority. The priority is to be both of them. Getting that done is so complicated for so many reasons, but... I think if you're making the decision that like we're keeping this core together, you know, that core starts around those two guys. It's just so rare to have this. It could have been Delgado and Green, it could have been Delgado and Halliday, and it wasn't for this franchise. And, you know, I think that's part of the reason why you ended up two decades out of the postseason. Now you've got a chance to maybe have the winningest period of time in franchise history because you have these two guys and you've got some money to build around and you've got a stadium and you've got a farm system that still has some pieces coming. You know, why, if you can, why wouldn't you aim for both? You know, I'm sure that people will be laughing at this in in a few years, but you know, I can absolutely envision that scenario that you painted out. And really, I think in some ways, if you're going to do this, it's the best way to make it happen for a number of different reasons beyond you want both players. Yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. And it's, it's interesting. Like, when you're talking about making any kind of baseball prediction, of course, we're providing fuel for old takes exposed. I mean, Arden and I every year make over <laughs> under predictions that within months, like the very premises behind them are just ridiculous. So, I mean, there's no doubt. And that's what makes this hard, right? Because we're not talking one year, we're talking 14 years. Like, I'm very confident saying that Vlad Jr. is going to be an elite hitter in five years. I believe that as much as I believe anything about baseball. Same with Bo. He's going to be a very good player in five years. Ten years? I don't know. Like, I think Vlad will still be mashing baseballs in ten years. I'm pretty confident in that. Fourteen years? I have no idea. <laughs> I have I have no idea. Like, no. Fourteen years ago was what? 2008? Who were the best players in 2008? Jose Reyes and David Wright and, like, Justin Morneau? Like, that's a long time. You know, it's a really long time. So you just don't know. And you have to ultimately make a bet on the people, you know, and, and how they're going to be able to adjust over, over the course of a long period. 
Well, and I suppose the alternative, uh, I'll let you go in a second, Shiva, the alternative scenario that we could envision then is uh, Bo Bichette returning to Rogers Center 19 times a year wearing pinstripes and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Uh, playing for the Red Sox and like putting dents in the green monster for five, six years. Yeah, that could happen as well if you don't uh, if you don't extend these guys. You don't want Vladdy going into Cooperstown as a Red Sox. You really don't. It's like if you're going to do it, you understand you're signing up for decline, right? Like what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize the bad years that you're buying. So, you know, when you think about like Pujols that deal into his forties and, um, you you know, some of the other deals for players that go into the late thirties, if you can cut it off at, you know, in the mid thirties, which is what the Padres did with, you know, Tatis and Machado, right. You know, the 34, 35, 36 probably aren't going to be the, the six war seasons in all likelihood, but it's not going to be the replacement level variety either, right? You're not having touring 21 version of Miguel Cabrera making a massive amount of money. So that's what you're trying to avoid. And I think that's why you're trying to cut it off in that age range. But part of it, I mean, that's just a bit of the cost of doing business. Yeah. Yeah. Good players, superstar players are expensive, but you're trying to win. And a really good way to win is to have superstar players on your roster. And when you win, you make a lot of money and then you can spend a lot of money and you can raise a couple banners, you hope, and and everybody's happy. Very, very fascinating decisions to come for the Blue Jays Uh, and some more Blue Jays topics as well to get to with uh, with Shai Davidi. We'll do that and so much more on the other side of the break when we continue on At The Letters. It continues on at the letters Arden's Welling, Ben Nicholson Smith, joined by Shai Davidi. Thank you uh, again for your time, Shai. You have not only written about Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. recently, you also wrote about Jamie Vieira recently, who is going to be the uh, the first woman in a coaching role for the Blue Jays in franchise history this year. Very exciting moment for the franchise and, and for Jamie as well. Uh, she's going to be a hitting coach at the uh, the PDC in uh, the complex there in, in Dunedin, Florida. She's one of uh, a number of, of female hires uh, that we have seen across the industry lately. Rachel uh, Balkovich was hired to manage the Yankees low A. Sarah Goodrum is going to be the director of player development for the Houston Astros. Kim Hing, of course, uh, you know, entering what will be, I guess, her third year now as GM or second year as GM of, of the Miami Marlins, first female GM in, in MLB history. So it's still uh, an overwhelmingly male-dominated industry and you know that doesn't change with these hirings but it is progress it is a step in uh in the right direction so like what do you think shy sort of led to jamie Vieira getting this coaching role with the blue jays what do you think the the blue jays see in Vieira, and and what do you kind of envision this this role is going to be going forward well i I think let's start off by saying this that it has been patently absurd that baseball and sports in general uh, male sports in general have cut themselves off to 50% of the population and from exploring you know, the talents within that percentage of the population strictly based on gender. And I think what we're seeing is that teams are like, yeah, we, sh- we probably shouldn't be dumb like this anymore because there's no reason to not have women in these types of positions. So I think that's obviously the first step. 
But, you know, Jamie Vieira had a really interesting career path, right? She was she grew up playing softball, uh, loving baseball. Uh, she ended up uh, coaching at uh, Guelph Humber after she was done playing there. She studied kinesiology, ended up doing a Master of Science focused on biomechanics as a way to continue studying the impacts of the baseball swing on the human body. Uh, she really used baseball as a vehicle to pursue that degree. And she'd always wanted to work in baseball. She, she didn't believe that she sort of had a pathway into it. And then there ended up being a job that came up with the Jays Care Foundation, which involves community development work. She applied, she got it. She did that for a couple of years, by all accounts, was rem remarkably good at that job. Once she was in the building, she kept on trying to talk to, you know, the people in baseball operations and saying, hey, you know, this is my background. and Can we meet? Can we talk? I've got maybe some ideas for you. You know, those conversations led them to sort of realize like, oh, there's a really talented and smart person doing some things that we really want. And a lot of her education and her background ended up meshing with some of the trends in hitting because there's obviously been a lot of emphasis on biomechanics was initially sort of focused on pitching, but now we're seeing a lot of the advanced data being used on the hitting side too, in the way that it's been done on pitching. And so she sort of had this skill set for where the industry was going. And they ended up asking her to uh, apply for an internship that they had in the baseball operations department. She had a few opportunities with other teams, but this one's most spoke to her passion. She got in there and one thing leads to another. And, you know, everybody was so impressed with her work that she, they decided, uh, let's keep her at the, uh, at the complex and have her work with hitters. And you know, they tested her out during a camp uh, for hitters in November. Uh, it was a small group, but she was working with about 20 younger players who were, uh, either in need of a swing of adjustment or looking to work on a few things specifically. Everyone was really impressed with the way that she was able to transfer information and deliver that to players. And, you know, I think that was really what sealed the deal for the Blue Jays and for, and for Jamie. I guess just to begin, definitely want to echo what you guys said. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Major League Baseball, of course, an industry that is not diverse on a lot of levels and want to push it in that direction. So these hires are definitely good to see. At the same time, Major League Baseball, probably not the right comparison to be comparing yourself to, for argument's sake, the Rockies or the Twins or the Diamondbacks. You can be ahead of those organizations and still be behind of where you need to be. So still room to, to go here for Major League Baseball. It was interesting seeing Brian Cashman say that clearly this is Major League Baseball and the Yankees want to get to a point that this is not as newsworthy. And clearly it is newsworthy now and definitely worth talking about now. But Shai, how, how far do you think Major League Baseball still has to go on this front before it is more just normalized? You know, The way that I would look at it, Ben, is I would say that as more and more women are getting into these jobs, it becomes less and less that each woman's role feels like it's a litmus test of will this work? Credit to Rachel Belkovich because she's had to wear a lot of this, right? Being the first and sort of being scrutinized. And, you know, if she had struggled or she had not succeeded, you know, would people have looked at this differently and said, oh, maybe maybe this isn't going to work and we have to keep the genders apart or, or something stupid like that. But I think the ultimate litmus test, and, you know, I think back to something, you know, Felipe Alou used to say about, you know, Latino managers getting hired. It's like, it's not just a matter of when we get hired, but it's also when we start getting rehired after we get fired, that'll be the sign of right. progress. And I think similarly, 
that will be sort of the ultimate litmus test. You know, are women going to be given a chance to fail, but not discarded because they failed? You know, that that to me will be a really important point of progress because sometimes you go into a situation and it doesn't matter who you are, you're just not going to succeed because it doesn't work with the combination of personalities or the fit isn't right or whatever it may be. I would hope that this isn't the case, but you know, that there may be some people still in the game who would say, well, look, we tried it and clearly this doesn't work. So we're going to go back to what we know. You know, I think that's the mentality that everyone's got to be on guard for these women who come into the game, like they're going to have players who are a pain in the ass for them, but that's because that player was going to be a pain in the ass for whoever was coaching them. Right. Right. Like not every player gets along with every coach. And, you know, I think that as the industry provides these women, the appropriate grace, the same grace that men in those positions get, then I think at that point we'll have seen the real and true change. Well, and what are you looking at when you're hiring anybody? You're looking at qualifications, right? Like how qualified are you to to do this job? And in in these three cases, these women are actually like absurdly overqualified, like to a ridiculous degree to do these jobs. Like I keep coming back to that. It's just how much steeper the hill is for women and like how much more they have to prove themselves to get these roles. Like you mentioned Shai Vieira has a, a master's degree and would have been working towards like a doctorate right now if she hadn't begun her career in professional baseball, like would have been in a, like a multi-million dollar biomechanics lab rather than like some dingy minor league clubhouse somewhere. Sarah Goodrum, Astros player development head now, she has a master's degree. Rachel Balkovich, she has two master's degrees. <laughs> she has two of them. Um, Like we've all been covering this sport for a long long time guys how many minor league coaches and managers have you run into who hold master's degrees like how many are are even out there how many other male counterparts have these qualifications like you can even look at um like kim ing who i mentioned earlier gm of the miami marlins i mean she was interviewed for countless front office roles over the years and clubs loved letting people us in the media know that they were interviewing a female candidate a minority candidate that news always got out but somehow she was always just you know not quite good enough and it's like why when you've been working for brian cashman as an agm for however many years she's with the yankees she spent a decade as an agm with the dodgers she's negotiating contracts and handling arbitration cases building out player development uh you know systems domestically and overseas like she has vast experience doing everything that a gm does all in all of these front office roles Meanwhile, over that time, Brody Van Wagenen walks into a GM job as an agent with no front office experience. Jeff Lunau walks into front office positions with a background in technology and consulting, like outside of baseball entirely. So it is, you know, how many minor league coaches and managers are hired without a CV that has masters and doctorates on it? I mean, it's just a reminder of how insanely overqualified women have had to be to even be considered for this role. And I don't think that the next woman who is hired to be a coach or a manager should have to have multiple master's degrees just to be considered. Right. And that that's a, a significant barrier to entry isn't pointed out enough. And, you know, there's a, a Toronto born woman who's working in major league baseball office right now. Her name is Elizabeth Ben. And she's part of their, amongst other things, she works in the, in their labor relations department. She does a lot of different things. And among her duties is, 
you know, work on expanding and developing this, this pipeline for women to get into this industry. And, uh, you know, that is creating opportunities for women to get in. And, you know, as much as like we say, like with diversity, we always say, hey, like, let's level the playing field. But, you know, it has to start by creating a pipeline so that people have a way to get in. You know, it's not like you're just looking to hire a GM right away. You know, you're, you're, you've been grooming lots of diverse candidates for years and years and years. So they're naturally populating these areas where they get opportunities. In the absence of that, these women almost have to be overqualified. And, you know, I was talking to one coach recently and uh, he had seen the news about Jamie Vieira and he saw some of the reaction on social media to it. It was like, you know, people don't get it. Like players don't care, right? They just want the good information. It's worth remembering that most of these women are more than qualified. A lot of the other coaches that are getting hired and getting opportunities, right? You've got like male coaches who don't have the same level of credentials who are getting opportunities. And so when and how that field gets leveled, I mean, that that's a different conversation. Ultimately, the, the creation of more pipelines, the slow population of women into a variety of roles across the industry will create natural candidates from within. And that will at least theoretically lead to a, a real transformation. It's interesting, you can trace it back a couple of years even to Nikki Huffman was in the Blue Jays dugout in what was it 2016, 17, 18 in that range. And I remember at that time how meaningful that was to a lot of people to see a woman lining up with the team for the national anthem. And of course, that kind of modeling can have a, an effect over time and bring more people into that pipeline. So, you know, Shai, as you've had these conversations with people throughout the game, with women throughout the game, what's your sense of what's happening behind the scenes to really make sure that pipeline exists and stay strong? The Take the Field initiative, which is uh, Elizabeth Ben helps run, you know, that that's a yearly thing. Uh, and I believe it went virtual this year because of the pandemic. But, you know, that's uh, uh, something that usually happens at the winter meetings. And, you know, it's about allowing women to get introduced to people who are hiring. I think the big thing, even though there's been such a push towards being objective and eliminating biases and preconceived notions, there still are a lot of biases and preconceived notions, right? Like, you know, you're you're supposed to hire this type of person for this, or this is the talent pool for this. And, you know, some organizations have worked to sort of create blinders in the process where, you know, they're not looking at names, they're only looking at qualifications so that someone like uh, like a Rachel Belkovich, you know, for a period of time, she changed her name to Ray on her resume, you know, because she was ha having a, a much better resume than the people she was competing against, but getting no interest simply because people saw Rachel. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of work being done on that, clearly not enough and, you know, clearly not fast enough. But I think there's more of an openness to this. And, you know, I remember a conversation I had with Farhan Zaidi uh, years ago after he'd gotten hired into the GM's job, just talking to him about his path as a Canadian and sort of how difficult it, it was for Canadians to get into that type of a role. And, you know, he was saying the game is become open because, you know, a decade ago, no one would have looked at someone like me with my resume and my lack of playing background and considered me for this type of a role. There was an evolution to open it up in that way. And now I think the evolution is coming as like, well, we got to expand the pool. Like, we don't just have to consider men who are in these roles. We have to consider women and, you know, be a, a little bit more considerate of 
you know, Latino people from Latino countries and 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 other minorities and BIPOC people who haven't gotten as much of an opportunity. So, you know, how pervasive that openness becomes will determine sort of the next steps. But you know, Major League Baseball is working at it. Whether it ultimately takes, though, will depend on how the thirty clubs behave. Well, and even just to sort of broaden this, like I, I think or I hope that uh, sort of more modern, progressive, open-minded franchises are beginning to understand the power of different perspectives and different viewpoints and thinking differently about things and not having like you know your entire minor league like organization of coaches all be the same old stodgy disciplinarian white guy who's gonna be like the hard-ass no-nonsense like the role of a coach even is just like changing as the player population changes like you mentioned it shy like players don't care especially young players these days they just want the good information like they just want to be better like to get better like help me be my best so i can go on to make a bunch of money doing this like so that i can go on to sign a tatis contract like help me reach my potential and that's what a coach is i think in the modern game it isn't somebody to come in and scream and stomp and yell and do all this stuff that you've seen in movies like i think it is to help your players realize their potential and to get the best out of your players every single night like that's because you're dealing with inherently really skilled individuals in today's game like everybody who comes into this game now is you know has been receiving very very highly specialized coaching for years prior to turning professional and they're all skilled and they're all talented and they're all good like that's just how good the game has gotten now so now it's about helping those players like reach the next level and being supportive building relationships with them building trust you know just helping them not like admonishing and criticizing belittling them and screaming at them it's about really facilitating like and i know this is getting really buzzwordy but like facilitating an environment where those players can feel comfortable and do their best work and grow and be successful like i just think that the modern coach the modern manager needs a really different skill set today than the coaches and managers of 20 years ago did yeah and, and you know i think that people need to understand players are smart yeah right like if somebody comes to you and you've got something that's going to help them like they don't care what you look like or who you are or where you're from like you're going to help me get better <laughs> let's go right and, and that's how simple it needs to be like can you make people better and can you connect with people and can you make them better uh, you know the one worrying trend is that you know there is value to the traditional coach, the former player who's been through it all. And, you know, they're going to have some views that other people aren't going to have. Right. And I think the smartest franchises are the ones who are going to have a balance between, you know, some, some new age thinkers, some people who work really well with data, some people who are really good uh, with various elements of psychology. And then you, you're going to need some people who have been through it and have just been, you know, they know what it's like when you're batting 174 and men on second and third, you're trying to win the game, but you feel like crap. Or you don't know if you can hit anything, right? Like there's value to that too. And the game needs to be careful to not completely discard that element as well. Because I, I do think that baseball is so trend driven that, you know, sometimes you risk throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the traditional style of coaches. You know, I, I think the ultimate thing is like, can these people show how they make players better? And do the players respond? And if the players respond, that's your answer. Yeah, there's a, I think there's no doubt those traditional coaches are are great. They bring tons of value. Even even the idea of someone who has been there on that mount and faced that pressure, faced those questions after a blown save, 
that's not an easy thing to do. I've never done that, but I can't imagine that facing the likes of us after you blow a save is fun and, and it might weigh on people. So there's room for that. There's also room for people uh, like Jamie Vieira who come in and have different perspectives and 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 different skills to offer. And, and there's still room to explore further um, and, and open the doors of baseball further. Yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah, and point be taken that it's sometimes not fun to talk to us even after you, you kind of get the save and nail it down. <laughs> True. <so. laughs> no kidding. Um, so just to land this thing, I guess we have to talk about CBA and we have to talk about labor. And when I kind of look at where things stand right now between the owners and the players, like it's funny, like the like the bar for like progress in this thing is so low that it's like very easy to like think that you're seeing faint signs of it just when they meet and aren't like slinging mud and feces at each other for the entire meeting like but it still is like hard to be too optimistic about a resolution coming anytime soon because like you, like you look at it and conceptually like the two sides at least they're talking about the same things like at least they're talking about a bonus pool for pre-art players and at least they're both talking about raising minimum salaries like that's good but then you sort of zoom in on the details of it and it becomes very apparent just how far apart the two sides still are when you're talking about a, like a pre-R bonus pool and the union's looking for a hundred million plus and the league's like, yeah, how about 10? That's a really big gap. Um, same thing with increasing minimum salaries where the union would like it to be like 775 and the league is coming back and saying, how about 615? Uh, which isn't even like paced with inflation or correlated to league revenue increases since the last CBA. Like there's still such a gap and such a gulf there, even though they are sort of talking about the same concepts. So like, are you guys with me that it feels like there's been progress and it feels like there's a bit of momentum, but it's still kind of hard to be optimistic right now. There's been progress. Like the last week, the last few days have been good. They've, as you say, like they're talking the same language and that's important. I think if this were a free agent negotiation, there would be mutual interest in reaching a deal. They would have had some conversations and they would be nowhere close to finalizing a deal. Like there's a lot of work left to be done. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, I think that it was significant that there was some loose progress made on concepts this week, right? Because it's sort of like, at least now you're no longer on parallel roads, you're on the same road in a few areas. But this is ultimately that the big questions here are, what are you going to do with the competitive balance tax? How much is that going to move? You know, and is there going to be some way to address, you know, the the tanking issue, forcing teams to try to win, you know, and then and then you know how far the the owners willing to go to get expanded playoffs to get those two things because that's what the players really have to to give the owners right now. So the heavy lifting is still here, and you know I think right now players are understanding they're they're not getting spring training, and you know, I think both sides are signaling to each other that yeah we're willing to miss some games. You know that's where you you sort of have to signal that to to one another at this point if you're going to stand your ground, but that's uh, that's where we are. Yeah, the thing that drove me nuts about you know the the ownership proposal the other day with minimum salaries, which was uh, yeah I guess they were saying what six fifteen was going to be the new minimum salary. Yeah, we're increasing it, but like I said, you know it, it's not even keeping up with inflation. It's like when your employer gives you a, a like a two percent cost of living raise when inflation is four percent. It's actually a two percent pay cut. 
And then also, the owners were proposing that the minimum salary would be all that you could pay that pre art player. You couldn't give them anything in excess of that. It's not even a minimum anymore. That's actually a maximum is what you're proposing. Uh, that's actually much different than a minimum salary. But that's kind of where things are right now, where with the last CBA, like the owners back the players so far up into their own side of the field that you're in a situation right now, like you said, Shy, like the players are still, you know, looking for quite a bit in this negotiation right like they still want to do something about service time manipulation like you said still want to incentivize competitiveness you want to increase the cbt still want to address revenue sharing and then on the ownership side it's just like yeah we just want bigger playoffs like is there anything else the owners are even looking to get out of this negotiation right now like they hold so many cards and like they have had such an advantage for so long i wonder if that is harming momentum and sort of forcing the players to negotiate against themselves a little bit because the owners aren't that incentivized right now to move off of their positions i think it's pretty clear that the the owners and i think the players are, are looking at it this way too that yeah, the the owners are going to force the players to make the move. Like they're they're like, you want us to change? Well, you guys are going to have to suffer to get it because you know the owners understand they're in the driver's seat. Like they've really progressively over the course of three CBAs, you know, implementing initially uh, revenue sharing, proceeding to get the you know the the soft cap on draft picks and then the hard cap on international spending, continuing to get the compensatory draft picks tied to elite free agents, as well as not moving the the competitive balance tax threshold uh, commensurate to you know inflationary spending in the game. Like all these things have deflated salaries and, and caused them to stagnate. So you know why would the owners want to give any of that back? And so in order to get that, the players are going to have to really you know make a decision. You know, what are the issues that you want to fight over? And then, you know, how far are you willing to fight to get them? There's probably a middle ground compromise there that they trade off expanded playoffs for an increase in the CBT threshold. The arbitration system largely stays the way it is. And, you know, there's a slight bump in, you know, the minimum salary. And maybe that's the middle ground where both sides are working to and there aren't any major adjustments. But, you know, the longer this drags on, I think the, the risk is that the sides could start getting dug in a bit more. Because it's like once you start losing games and you start losing revenues, well, then you want to make sure you're getting something in return at that point. This is getting to the point where things start getting interesting because players, owners, I don't think anything that's happened so far is surprising, really. Like I certainly haven't been surprised. I don't get the sense that people involved with the talks are that surprised. But it's it's interesting too, like because it's so complicated. And I find this stuff really fascinating like because you're pulling on so many different things at once and so you can push in one and pull in the other what it comes down to though is the players messed up the last one like they didn't do a good job they realized that actually very quickly after the last cba and now they're trying to claw it back and so yeah the owners want expanded playoffs but essentially the owners are more content with the status quo as i understand it than the players are so now the players are trying to push these agendas they're trying to come up with these proposals and what's encouraging to me is the owners actually are willing to move on some of these things. So I, the owners get a bad rap, rightfully so, but they are moving. I mean, we're looking at increases in minimums. We're looking at there, there's going to be a draft lottery of some kind where all non-playoff teams are going to be eligible. So there is movement. I think we're going to see the CBT move, but it hasn't happened yet. And so we're now in this position where 
they are kind of at this standstill on some of the huge, like the CBT is massive. That's like a huge, huge deal for both sides in this. There's no way to guess a timeline, but it's clear where the issues lie. I think what's sort of disappointing in in some ways is that you know there are a lot of issues in your in your sport right now, right? Like you've been talking about rule changes forever and ways to kind of figure out how to connect with the younger generation. Obviously, trying to recover from the pandemic, which is you know still hitting different parts of uh, the major leagues in different ways. And I understand baseball always works towards a deadline and and all these things, but there there was probably a more constructive way to do this. I think the the, the owners went as aggressive as they could. The players with their hiring of Bruce Meyer were certainly taking a bit more of an aggressive stance, which they felt they needed to after the previous CBAs for the reasons that you mentioned there. I understand that everybody kind of feels they need to get this, into this fight, but like, was this the right time for it? And did it have to happen this way? Or could the owners say, you know what? We definitely have handed it to the players the last three times. You know, let's scale it back a little bit. But if they really want this partnership that they, you know, they're trying to whisper into people's ears and trying to get them to believe and trying to get them to, to, to spread out, then, you know, then act like it. And they don't act like that. So like, you know, stop trying to tell people that that's what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Partnership just sounds like a buzzword. It's a business. They're just trying to get the best deal they can for their business. I mean, that that's what it comes down to. Um, but, you know, it's funny, like you mentioned the tenor of these talks so far. It's been pretty smooth. Like, I think the players have been pretty quiet so far. And there is the potential here if the players actually get upset for them to really start rocking things. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that that's going to happen. Hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully things stay as calm as possible. We haven't really seen sniping get to the point that it was in 2020 when they were trying to negotiate that season. That does nobody any, any good. And I think both sides are there, but it's been easy to not snipe because you're in off season, right? Like both, both sides are about to start losing money. And that's when it's going to get nasty. Yeah, sign me up for Shy's like idealistic, altruistic, you know, reality that he was painting there, rather yeah. than Ben's like dystopian. Oh, it can actually get so much worse, guys. Uh, it like, can though. <laughs> it can. Yeah, give me. I'm not saying it will, but it can. Yeah, give me the the Davidi perspective on that one, please. Um, just to to play ourselves out, since we are a Blue Jays podcast, we should you know play to our audience while we play ourselves out here a little bit. What are sort of the impacts on the Blue Jays specifically that you've seen so far from how this has played out? I think in the landscape of their division, the CBT is super important with uh, you know the Yankees and the Red Sox. And in case they, the Blue Jays ever get to a point where you know with the renovated stadium, they have enough revenue to sort of push closer to that. Obviously, expanded playoffs. You know, anything that's giving them more pathways in probably makes more sense. Yeah, that's that's the big one for me is the playoffs. And you know, my first thought after seeing the Jays miss out the way they did is okay expand a playoffs for a good thing and then you start thinking about it, it's like this team is actually really good at least the way i see it i think they're one of the best teams in the american league i don't think they need expanded playoffs to get in so now they're about to expand them i don't even i'm not sure if it actually helps them that much i mean it will increase their odds of making the playoffs but will it increase their odds of making the world series i don't know i think that's actually up for debate it's still the American League East where you're dealing with the Yankees and Red Sox and you're dealing with, you know, the Rays who are perennially a massive problem, have one of the best farm systems in all of baseball. Like Franco is like the tip of that sphere. Uh, and, you know, the Orioles are trying to get better at least and they are at least have some, some good young players on the way. So 
you know, I think the Blue Jays are going to be pretty happy with expanded postseason no matter what. And even still, like, look, if you're that good, if you're good enough to win the division, hopefully there still is like an incentive within the expanded structure where by winning your division, you're in an advantageous position where you don't have to go play a one game playoff or a three game series. Like you get to kind of sit back and enjoy an advantage there. That's a good point, Arden. You know, the the risk of diluting it too far is significant, right? Like, I don't know. I, I thought about like the 16 teams of 2020. It was good in that time and it felt right for that period and sort of what everyone was going through. But like, that was way too much. And I think even maybe 14, which seems like the, to be the number that the owners really want, you know, that feels a little high too. Like 12, I think would feel maybe a little bit more right to me. Like, look, more playoffs are always good, but like if it goes too far, you know, does does it start becoming a bit less fun? But even with the 16 teams, like a number of those teams were eliminated within like 48 hours. Like the Blue Jays played the Rays. They played game one on a night was a night game and game two was like the next afternoon. The Blue Jays were out of it in like 40 hours. So it's not like you had this big, long drawn on thing like you you whittled down that field like awfully quickly. Yeah, I personally, 14 is too much for me. I I, I don't like it. I, I think 12 would be awesome, especially if those 11th and 12th teams are wild cards and you have more play in games. Like, I think that would be incredible. I don't like 14. I, I just maybe I'll maybe I'll change my mind and like it once it happens, because I, I agree. I think that there's a very good chance that will happen. It'll either be 12 or 14, but I would prefer 12. Like if you're going to be at 14, at some point, a bad team is going to get in. You know, like you're going to have a sub 500 team sneak in one year. And then what if they upset? Like, yeah. It's baseball, man. It's a 50, any game, it's a 50 50 proposition at the end of the day. If it's something like a best of three in the first round, like, I, I don't know that that's good. No, I don't need the 78 and 84 Brewers to come in with Josh Hader and Devin Williams and bullpen their way to the NLCS. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't want that. I, I would be okay with it if it came with some form of divisional realignment. Like I'm ready to blow up these divisions and to change things. I'm ready to go with just like just two leagues even or what like look if if you're gonna have the DH across the entire game, like that really does open things up to changing the structure of divisions and whatever conferences, leagues, all that stuff completely. I'd be up for that. I'd be up for like a little tournament in the middle of the season to make things interesting. Maybe there's a playoff spot on the line in the tournament or something like that you know we've seen in the minors like first half and second half records matter like i am i am open to changing things pretty dramatically at least more so than than you guys are i'm ready to shake this up wow arden always asking baseball to run before it crawls <laughs> yeah man a tournament in season interesting Why not? interesting make things interesting right now like july is such a dead zone right like yeah. i would punt yeah. the all-star game a hundred times out of a hundred i don't care about the all-star game i don't care about the home run derby punt those things and give me like a mid-season tournament with something on the line national team tournament yeah i want to see like 140 games 12 teams in the playoffs like we don't need 162 let's allow these players to rest a little bit and then let's have 12 team playoffs yes cedo gaston always used to advocate for a schedule that was six games a week, right? And yeah. a, a guaranteed one day off every week for recovery. Yeah, that's what Japan does. That's what they do in MPP. Um, that's what the Miners did last year, right? And they would play in one city the entire week, Monday through, uh, or I guess Tuesday through Sunday. They would play at all six games in one city. Great for rivalries, right? Great for the fans who get more familiar with like the players on on other teams. Um, I don't know if you could pull it off in MLB, but it would cut down on travel, be good for player welfare. It would help players perform better. Your product is better. Um, 
Yep. Yeah. That which is going to be an increasing uh, consideration as we go on into the future here. Yeah. No, I'm I'm open for that as well. I think it would be great if like across MLB Monday was just off. Just that's just when you reset and then you go Tuesday Sunday. Yeah, or it's Monday, Monday, Monday's Thursdays. You alternated between the two, whatever the case. But just have like a few, so that you have at least baseball on every day of the week yes, at yeah. some point. Uh, but you know, there are a number of creative ways to do it. But you know, I think part of the challenge is you know you've sold 162 to all these TV networks, and nobody's refunded that money. That's right. The the three of us are going to go to New York and explain to these owners why they need to give up 11 home dates every year, uh, and why they need to give up that gate and that revenue, and uh, yeah, hurt their TV <laughs> contracts in uh, in the process. And, and how long Easy. before we get thrown out uh, onto the street in Manhattan by the by our necks? We don't get through the lobby, Shy, is, uh, <laughs> is what happens there. Uh, but you did get on to add the letters, Shy, and we appreciate your time. As always, read them at sportsnet.ca. Follow them on Twitter, at Shy Davidi. Thank you so much for your time. Ben's on Twitter at B. Nicholson Smith. My name's Arden Zwelling. Our producers were Amal Delich and Nick Andrade. It's 2022 at the letters year eight. It is here and uh, everywhere that you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time on at the letters.